Hi, everyone. I'm Andrew. And I'm Michael. And this is the Endurance Innovation Podcast. Uh, hey everyone, and uh, welcome back to Endurance Innovation. Um, please excuse the sound of my voice. I've, uh, I'm on week three of this cold, which I fully blame my children for. And uh, Andrew, unfortunately, isn't with us today. He is, uh, at the time of recording, in midair, somewhere coming home from hot and sunny Mexico to cold and snowy Calgary, Alberta. So uh, we'll have to uh, make do without him. Joining us today, though, is uh, co-founder of Precision Hydration, Andy Blow. Andy, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me on, Michael. My pleasure. And uh, Andy, if you could just uh, give folks a quick um, introduction to your background, uh, specifically in hydration and the, uh, the science behind it. Yeah, no, no problem at all. So I, I had a, a sort of a, a dual interest in, in hydration, really. If one was from a a more of an academic scientific point of view I, I studied sport and exercise science and that was obviously a, an interesting part of that topic but really where I got super interested in in hydration was um, when I was racing in Ironman and other long hot endurance events and I basically screwed up my hydration royally many many times over <laughs> and and sort of that got my curiosity as to why was this my Achilles heel when it came to racing in the heat and and that was what prompted me to 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 investigate the issues that I was having myself, which then, you know, kind of through a convoluted route led to, to, to finding out about um, sweat testing and finding out about electrolyte losses and the difference that different, the different levels of sweat and electrolyte loss that different people suffer from. And out of all of that kind of personal struggle came the idea for precision hydration, which is the company that I'm running now. You bring up a couple of really good points. The first one I really want to highlight is that, um, nutrition and hydration, maybe less so than in the past, but um, have, in my opinion, not taken the the important role that they should in the training and then in the consideration of endurance athletes, especially long course endurance athletes. And if we think about the the time and the effort and the money that we put into training and gear and everything just to try to engineer the race that we want. Oftentimes we don't pay as much attention to, um, to nutrition and hydration and the, the costs are, are real. You know, you can be as fit and uh, have the most amazing equipment, the best bike fit, uh, superbly aerodynamic. And then if you get, if you get this part of your, uh, race strategy wrong, that's a very quick exit on the day. And that's a, uh, that's a real shame, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I found ex- exactly that, you know, I was, I was getting pretty, pretty fit for for racing and doing well in races in cool climates and and sort of yeah basically executing races to the level that which I felt my fitness could accommodate and then I was going and racing in the heat and because I had little experience of it and and was having problems with my my hydration it was just torpedoing the races for no it was a very clear and simple reason why it was happening or very if not simple reason but a very easily defined reason why it was happening and and it's kind of one of those and the longer the race i think to a certain extent the bigger that those factors become they often people talk about nutrition hydration being the fourth discipline in ironman because because you can really without it you you your race will collapse if you don't get it right 
Absolutely. I actually wrote a, a whole page of questions for you, Andy, but this introductory, introductory conversation really brings up the most important question. And it's a really broad one, but I think from there we can branch on is, is how do you get it right? And then maybe perhaps given your, your past experience and certainly my experience and uh, without um, spilling too many beans, Andrew's experience recently, uh, what do people typically get wrong in, uh, in creating uh, and executing their hydration strategy? Well, I'd say first and foremost, when it comes to getting hydration and nutrition right for athletes, the first, the first and biggest point to understand is that I think it requires commitment to a, an iterative process of figuring out what works for you as an individual right. and, and always trial and error involved. So the, the, if you really boil it down, there's kind of three things that your body needs while you're exercising hard and doing long endurance stuff. And it's kind of water, calories, and in some cases, salt, because they're the costs of exercising hard. You know, you basically burn a lot of energy, you, you produce a lot of sweat, you sweat out water and salt. Right. And you have to replace those things. And I talk to athletes a lot about thinking about those things as like three separate variables and there'll be a level of calories or grams of carbohydrate or however you want to describe it that you you will function best on per hour and that's going to be based on the speed you're moving at your ability to absorb them the length of the race the environmental conditions but there'll be a sweet spot you know around which you can function well if you get an amount of of, of carbohydrates or calories in and, and one strand of trial and error is to is to is to basically play around with the the amount of that and the delivery method of that you know that energy in order to figure out what you need okay then you've got the same you've got the same for the amount of fluid that you need and the same for the amount of salt you need and that individual mix is different for every person and to an extent it's different for the same person in different scenarios so obviously when it's very cold you may have a an equally high amount, high requirement for calories and carbs that you do on a, a warmer day, but a vastly reduced requirement for salts and fluids. And then when it gets very, very hot, it can go a little bit the other way. So maybe your your requirement for fluids and salts goes way, way higher, but your calorie requirements stay the same or even slightly less in some cases. Um, and it's just a case of then very simply manipulating those variables. But what people get quite wrong a lot of the time i think is that they either they, they don't understand that it's it's relatively simple in that regard and get confused by all of the myriad of different opinions and products and strategies that are out there or they focus on on you know a holistic plan and then when that doesn't work they change everything at the same time <laughs> right. and, and can never then figure out what what the difference was and i know that you know using my myself as an example there that was definitely the case i would go into different events with wildly different strategies basically because my previous strategy obviously sucked so i kind of felt like well i just need to change it up and i didn't really approach that you know when i was younger in a particularly mindful or intelligent way and until i started to really unpick this particular aspect that was relevant to me which was salt and fluid loss 
Right. And uh, this is a really great dovetail into, you know, the first of my formal questions. And that is, um, how do you think about uh, coupling those three items? And uh, I'll, I'll give listeners a little bit of context. Um, you know, when we talk about coupling and say engineering solutions, we're talking about uh, variables that are that are tied together. So the classic example of a coupled um, solution to no pun intended, to uh, uh, sports nutrition would be your sports drink, which would have obviously water and uh, carbohydrates and salt. So you can drink more or less of that specific sport drink, but you can't really uh, play around with the individual concentrations of those of those well, concentrations of the carbohydrate and the salt in the water um, if you've got if you're drinking something off the shelf. So this is a classic example of a coupled system. Um, so Andy, what are your thoughts on on the high level thoughts on on coupling your water with your carbohydrates and your uh, sodium and other salt? I think I think over shorter races, and I'm probably talking like less than two or three hours, and for events that are in moderate, you know, normal normal kind of temperatures, you know, temperate weather, so not super cold and not super hot, then sometimes that that all in one, the kind of classic isotonic sports drink approach can work reasonably well for for a lot of people because essentially, like I said, what you need is fluid, um, calories and salts, and that that mixture if you drink it in reasonable volumes that are compatible with you know what you can digest and and hold on to it replaces a good proportion of what you're losing and because the body's brilliant at self-regulation as long as you give the body roughly what it needs you know within a a, a certain tolerance it sorts the rest out and you you'll be absolutely fine and that that's reasonably straightforward like say for shorter events and for events in temperate weather I think that where that approach can start to unravel is when you're doing very long or very hot events. And what I much prefer to to get people doing and what I prefer to do myself in those scenarios is eat more calories, drink more liquids, more water and salts, and either add the salts to the drinks at a different concentration or take in the salts independently from the drinks. And then you can really play with each parameter independently because the deeper you get into a long and, and particularly hot race, when you start to become good at reading your body or build up a, a bank of experience about how, you, how your body reacts, you, you might find that you want to you know, increase the fluid intake quite significantly, but without increasing the calories. And if you, everything's in one bottle, you just can't do that. Right. And the typical thing that we see when people try and do that is a lot of problems around you know, GI distress and sort of sickness and even diarrhea in some cases, and just generally feeling crappy and having a bloated stomach. So I'm, I wouldn't say, although a lot of people do say to me, oh, you're, you're a big advocate of decoupling these things, I, I am for 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 the you know, longer, hotter races or at any time when the sort of fluid, hydration, salt component is, is, is being driven up really high. I think, yeah, on the other side, you can get away with, with a, an all-in-one mixture for shorter stuff, and maybe that can be more effective. Right. So then if you're, uh, if you're an athlete going about training for a long course event and, you know, I agree with you certainly that, that short course is much easier to manage. There's, there's less room for error. Also less, you know, less uh, opportunity for GI distress, which is usually a late yeah. onset kind of event. Um, so for long course training, how do you start systematizing your, your training approach? Obviously you talked about, about trial and error. 
Um, but the, I, I find that the big, the greatest challenge with folks, um, training, let's say for Ironman specifically is that you'll, you're never going to go out there and do a 12 hour training day or a 10 hour training day or however long your Ironman race is going to be. How do you predict, I mean, you can go out in hot conditions or do indoor training, but how do you predict the impact of the duration, which I think I totally agree with you on as one of the greatest triggers of GI distress. Mm, that's a good question. It's a, and it's a real. It's actually a really. It's a big unknown for most people because you don't know how your body's going to react eight hours in until you get there, and and so you have to kind of. Some of it is about doing simulation type training sessions, and and you have to you you have to sort of extrapolate from your experiences mainly. Um, what I would say is that we it what I, what I like people to be able to do is is go into an event with an appreciation of what kind of level of fluid intake per hour, what kind of level of salt intake per hour, and what kind of level of carbohydrate intake per hour. The the general scientific wisdom would suggest that they might need, and then to be able to adjust that based on knowledge of their own individual circumstances. Because if, as I said before, the body's good at self-regulation. So if you get those things roughly right, you'll be fine. Yep. You don't have to, it's, this is not like hitting a bullseye. This is just like, if this was a target, we're talking about hitting a barn door, but people still get it wrong because either they don't have an appreciation of what those parameters might look like. You know, if I said, if, if I said to you, I'm sure you, you know, you, you're a scientific and engineering minded guy, but you know, what do you think is a, a, a good window of carbohydrate consumption per hour? What would you say? To that, well, you know, the, 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 the upper ceiling in the literature is about 90 grams. Um, yeah. if, if you're getting it from mixed sources like glucose, fructose, or glucose maltodextrin, um, about 90 grams per hour, I would say though for, and this is, I'm changing my tune on this from based on recent research I've seen from Monash University yeah. that especially towards later stages of a race, our, our, uh, abdominal, uh, our GI tract ability to absorb nutrition degrades. And yeah. so even if you are one of those people that is trained to, to you know, absorb and digest 90 grams per hour at the start of the race. That's not going to be the case at the end of the race. So it's, it's, um, I would say maybe even, uh, one, one third less. So maybe 60 grams or even 50 grams an hour towards the end of a long race. Yeah. That yeah. No, my I, kind of ballpark approach. And I'd, and I'd agree pretty much exactly with you, you know, there's, and, and it, what's interesting is, you know, you're, you're obviously someone who's like, he reads the research and takes an active interest in that. So you can, you, you would have an appreciation that if you were taking, for instance, less substantially less than 60 grams of carb per hour, or, and, and then you might, you might reasonably expect if your performance is degrading, that that's because you're not taking enough. Right. So you'd have to dial that up. If you start to get towards the 90 gram ceiling and interestingly, I have actually seen a number of athletes that can do quite a bit more than that, especially early on in the race. But, but um you know i would agree with you that for, as a good starting point thinking about 90 grams per hour is like a high amount is is a really good number to get in people's heads because if you're already at 90 grams an hour and starting to feel crappy or whatever then there's a very good chance that more carbohydrate is not going to fix that problem so so it's it's basically understanding what those parameters are if we talk about fluid intake i always say to people look if you're doing a long race especially in the heat if you're if you're less than sort of 16 ounces or about 500 milliliters per hour 
then I would say that's for the majority of people that's on the low side. But if you're doing substantially more than you know 1.2 liters or about 36 ounces an hour or something, you're already getting up towards what I would consider to be the very high side of what's a reasonable intake. So again, if you if you're on the fly, you're you're able to think about this and go in the last couple of hours, this is how much I've had, and how does that jibe with you know what the normal amounts are at least you it gives you an indication of which way you're likely to have to move to to improve rather than just this like i i when i was racing i um in about 2003 i did a very very hot long course race in nice in france which was the precursor to the ironman there was the world championships for long course at the time and and it was hot and i was i have a furious sweat rate and i was you know paranoid about dehydration so i was drinking a lot and then I was drinking so much, but my performance was just dying and I was just feeling terrible. But so I was drinking more because I was assuming, because I'd got it in my head, I was fixed in my head that dehydration was going to be the problem. And I just drank myself into basically hyponatremia. Which is not where you want to be, obviously. No, no, horrible, horrible experience. And for me, that was, you know, and I didn't even learn from that particularly quickly, but I look back now and reflect on the fact that I had no idea what the upper ceiling of what was a reasonable fluid intake was. I had no idea if two liters an hour was what some of the, you know, what some of the pros were doing. So, so I spend a lot of time just on the basics with people saying, look, you know, this is a kind of a reasonable amount of carbs per hour based on everything that we know generally and based on then a, a little bit more individualization around okay well you're a big guy and you're producing a lot of power and you're going very fast so maybe we can go more high side with that versus you're a smaller person who's who's going at a slower pace or whatever and therefore maybe we can get away on the lower side that's how you sort of start to calibrate these things um, with the salt intake that was the big that was the big issue for me you know i lose about 1.8 grams of sodium uh, per liter of sweat, which is very, very concentrated. Yeah, Yeah, super high. And that was just just crushing me in hot races because I was following standard guidelines, you know, taking a salt capsule or so an hour or, you know, a couple of hundred milligrams, 300 milligrams of sodium. And it was just, this was like not touching the sides. But again, you know, just looking back at my own ignorance, I was taking electrolytes and I had no, it was almost like I was taking them. So I didn't have any appreciation of what dosage was. And and I found, you know, long story short, I found that for me, I was up at the 1,200, 1,500 milligrams of sodium per hour during a, a hot Ironman event okay. in order to, to get around in good shape. And for me, that made the difference like night and day. It was absolutely, you know, a game changer. And it meant that I just didn't cramp and felt, felt a lot better. I managed to maintain my performance. but. But other people will survive that, survive on 200 milligrams an hour. Right. And this is probably a really important point uh, to make right now to our listeners who, who may not be uh, keenly aware of it is that there's a difference between sweat concentration and sweat rate. Um, we've talked, we've thrown the, with these two terms around, but I just want to make the, make sure that everyone, uh, you know, understands them really well. Andy, if you don't mind. Yeah, it's a really good point. Yeah, de- definitely. Sweat rate is, is fundamentally how much fluid you lose per hour. So, to, to get to get people's heads in that ballpark you know a low sweat rate when you're exercising hard might be half a liter per hour or 16 ounces an hour right. a really high sweat rate could be five times that so you could be losing two and a half liters per hour um, of sweat we, and that's a volume thing and that's determined a little bit by genetics some people just sweat more than others 
And a lot of it is driven by your work rate and by the environmental temperature. Because obviously, a big guy working really hard on a really hot day is going to sweat a ton more than a small person who's spinning along, you know, in the freezing cold winter. Yeah, right. Um, and 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 that variable, but that is a, that variable is independent from your sweat concentration or largely independent. So the amount of salt you lose in your sweat has a huge genetic component. And again, that's what a lot of people don't realize is some some of us, myself included, lose an absolute shed load more salt and sodium in our sweat than other people do. And it's the combination of those two variables, like what your sweat rate is like over a number of hours and what your sodium concentration in your sweat is like that determines your fluid and salt needs. Right. And then as far as testing, if you can just uh, take folks through what's, what are some, uh, some easy or maybe more involved tests to determine one or the other, because they're both truly important. They are. Um, and, and I think sweat rate is the easiest one to tackle first because measuring your sweat rate is, is something anyone with a set of scales can do. And you basically weigh yourself before and you weigh yourself after a, a training session or a, a hard workout you correct for the amount of fluid that you've drunk, or if you if you want to do a test, you often just don't drink, so right. you get a true reflection on on the weight. And the weight you lose is fundamentally most of it in a in a relatively short session anyway is mostly going to be water. So if you and one drop a drop of one kilo or two point two pounds equals one liter in in fluid. So if you go out run for an hour. Um, and you, you come back and you weigh two kilos less than you did, you've probably lost about two liters of sweat. Right. And that gives you a, a calibrator. Now, the, the interesting about sweat rate measurement is it's best done in a number of disciplines on a number of different days in different environments with different intensities to build up a trend. I think doing a sweat rate test as a one-off can be interesting for an athlete. But what's more interesting is is figuring out what your ballpark sweat losses are and if you can, doing that in simulated environments and intensities to what you're going to race in, because ultimately that gives you the most useful information. And if, and if people actually want to do that, we've got a, a blog on our website with a free downloadable spreadsheet where you can punch all your data in and it works out for you, your sweat rates per hour and, and that sort of thing. So I can, I can shoot you a, a link to that Please. for the show notes where people can, can have a go at that. Yeah, absolutely. That's a, that's a great idea. And then, um, and then go ahead. So I was going to say sweat concentration. That was the one which I didn't know much about at all before I got into this area, you know, with my own challenges. And I mean, most people are aware that you lose salt in your sweat. And the, but the concentration of that can vary dramatically from person to person. So I first got, got onto this when a doctor friend of mine looked at, looked at my racing kit that was covered in salt and my face was covered in salt after long races. And he said, you know what? I think you might be losing a lot of salt and we should investigate that. Um, and he then got me into a hospital to have a, a sweat test done. And a sweat test in, in the hospital environment is something which is used to diagnose cystic fibrosis. Oh, really? So, okay. So this is just an interesting quirk of you know physiology that people with CF, um, they, they are characteristic of that and how they've often been identified is through having salty sweat. Um, they used to say, you know, hundreds of years ago. Apparently, there was a, an old fable about, you know, if you if you kissed the child and it tasted salty, then the child wouldn't live very long. Huh. And this is thought to be a reference to sort of an early uh, early warning sign that people were picking up on without realizing it that these 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 kids had CF. And um, 
and so really sweat testing for cystic fibrosis has been going on in, in parallel to sweat testing in sport for many years but um what what i got interested in was okay well if i do this test and it tells me i lose a lot of salt in my sweat does that still apply when i'm doing exercise and it turned out that it did because the, the sweat test came back and they were like well this is really high i'm losing 1800 milligrams of sodium per liter the average in the population is about 900 so i'm sort of twice the average and we've since measured people that are losing 200 milligrams per liter wow. who are really really dilute and and so you know that's where the, the sweat testing that we've started to do with athletes comes in because it helps it just helps you to get a handle on where where your level of individual salt loss is and of course over very long duration exercise in the heat that that the the net losses of sodium can really mount up for someone like myself who has a high sweat rate and a high sodium concentration. Right, and then you can end up in that medical emergency where you're you're hyponatremic, which you know for our listeners is is a you know it is a medical emergency where your um, serum sodium levels drop so much that you're starting to have you know nerve transmission issues. Definitely, yeah, and your brain swells up, which is the real danger bit. Um, and you end up with, um, you know, you can end up with you know, cerebral edema, and then, and then, unfortunately, it does kill you know, a small, a small amount of athletes every year, you know, who, who get it, who get it wrong, and usually they get it wrong by vastly over drinking and diluting the salts in their body. But, but salt loss in sweat can be a contributory factor for those who are doing many, many hours of it. Right, right. So then um, getting back to our conversation about strategy, right, and, and then trying to give folks some actionable information, um, we, we talked a little bit about the, uh, the range of carbohydrate ingestion. And I think that's, I think people are starting to wrap their heads around it. I think anyone who's, who's done any kind of research or reading self-coached athletes um, are aware of the, you know, the upper ceiling and the range. Um, I don't talk to too many people these days who say that, oh, I just take one gel an hour and that's enough. That's, yeah. that's now in the minority. But sodium is still a little bit of a, of a black box for folks. So, you know, you talked about uh, um, sodium concentration testing and then and designing your strategy for that. But does it also, uh, does sodium also have a role in your ability to absorb the water that you're drinking? So does it help hydration and when i say hydration i'm literally talking about water uh crossing into you know crossing the the gi um lining into the bloodstream and actually helping with hydration absolutely yeah because because fundamentally you're when you sweat you're contracting your blood volume because you're losing blood right. plasma out into out into sweat your body reabsorbs some of the salt that that, that would otherwise be excreted at the sweat gland but it doesn't reabsorb all of it. So gradually, you're, as you sweat sweat out, you sweat out quite a lot of water and, and a bit of salt and your blood volume contracts. And if, if you just drink water, to a certain extent, that obviously replaces the fluid you're losing, but it will never replace those salts. And when during exercise, if that salt loss starts to mount up, then your, your body will stop absorbing the fluid very well because it wants to protect the level of sodium in the blood. Ah, because okay. the concentration of sodium in the blood is very important. You know, it's a, so, so one thing that people often find if they are losing a fair bit of salt in, uh, when they're exercising is if you add some salt back into your drinks or with your drinks or in the foods that you're eating with your drinks, then the, it helps to transit the, the fluid from 
your from your gut into the bloodstream because the sodium moves across the gut wall and it pulls fluid with it to maintain equilibrium so it actually helps and if you add glucose and sodium you get what's called glucose sodium co-transport which transitions fluid from the gut into the bloodstream even faster so that's why having either a gel and a salty drink or a or a drink with carbohydrate and and a lot of salt in it can really rehydrate you as you're dehydrating much much faster than if you're just drinking water alone and and you know there's a there seems to be a lot of relative controversy and confusion around that because there's so much marketing hype about other things that drinks can and can't do for people that that basic message gets a bit lost and and essentially it's quite simple you know if you're losing salt and fluid at a rapid rate replacing a proportion of that salt along with the fluid helps to maintain homeostasis and keeps your body far far happier than just chucking water in uh, so Andy, as far as uh, recommendations for folks on the upper end of the scale, so anyone who is uh, maybe a bigger athlete or a higher power athlete, uh, especially as you mentioned, racing in hot, humid conditions, um, where their sweat rate is going to be higher than that ceiling of uh, 1.2 liters of, that you can safely ingest of water. So then in their case, they want to be maximizing fluid ingestion and, and absorption. What are the strategies for um, for the concentration of carbs and, uh, and sodium in that 1.2 liters per hour that optimally gets that fluid into their blood plasma? I would say if you're going to go down the route of having some carbs in your, in your drinks, then keeping the concentration relatively low, especially if you're drinking large volumes, is, is sensible. So a, okay. a, a typical sports drink might be 6 or 7% carbohydrate, um, but one that's optimal for absorption that would be more isotonic one that's optimal for absorption might be more like two or three percent carbohydrate so very hypotonic um that's that's how we've formulated our our um, powdered drink mixes so they have about basically if you imagine taking a, a a regular sports drink that most people know like a gatorade you water it down by 50 percent, but you jack up the amount of electrolytes in there by about a factor of five. Oh wow okay so it, um, if something like that if we're if we're let's say taking a, a liter just because that's an easy volume to think about even though bike bottles are yeah. probably closer to 700 milliliters so in a liter uh what sort of uh how many grams of carbs like 30 grams of carbs okay. and um, and around about if you're a heavy salty sweater you know between a thousand and fifteen hundred milligrams of sodium in that liter or with that liter if you're going to take them in the form of capsules or whatever got it so then you're as far as sodium goes you're still thinking you're still trying to tie it back to your individual sweat concentration to an extent although there's a bit of a there's a bit of a trade-off to make with people that sweat a lot because sometimes we find that, you know, like with me, I'm, I might be losing two, two and a half liters of fluid an hour if I'm really going at it. And there's no way I can absorb anywhere near that amount. So I maybe benefit from having a slightly stronger drink um, because I'm replacing a bit more of the net sodium that I'm losing. And that's helping me maximize the fluid absorption and retention. Um, and rather than sort of, you know, so it's not, so it's not always tied to that, to the sweat concentration in a, in a formulaic way. Essentially, when we know someone's sweat rate and sweat concentration, what we then, what we're, what we're broadly doing is, is putting them in a kind of a bucket, which is like low sweat and salt loss, medium sweat and salt loss, 
high sweat and salt loss or really high sweat and salt loss. And then we have some strategies that tend to work or seem to work with people in those different groups. And then that's where you start that iterative trial and error process. Got it, got it. So often in a long race, and I mean, I'm sure you've done lots of long races yourself. I, I always like to start get people starting out with this plan and something that they've tried and tested. But ultimately, later on in the race, you've got to start to move towards a heavy reliance on listening to your body and really starting to figure out what it needs you know I'll, I'll often find that later in long races i'll i'll appreciate drinking a little bit of flat coca-cola i'll also probably have a few bottles just of water with no electrolytes in it if i start to find that i'm i'm taking a bit too much salt or i just feel like that water is more easily absorbed and all of those sorts of things you know they they come through experience and trial and error but so so it's, it's that it's that having a, a loose framework and plan for what those what those volumes of fluid what those milligrams of sodium and grams of carbs might look like for you generally but then being having the self-confidence to kind of tinker with those on the fly when you get deeper into a really tough event actually is what separates the kind of people that do this well from the people who do this brilliantly Right. No, that's a great, that's a great point. And I think that, you know, as much as we, <laughs> I think all of us strive for certainty in our lives, anytime you go into a long course race, like an Ironman or, you know, a long swim run or, or any kind of ultra trail racing, uh, a lot of it is, you know, you're, you're going to get to a point where you're kind of, you know, facing the unknown. And, uh, yeah. I, I totally, I totally take your point and I agree with it that it's, it's good. It's really good to have a plan. And it's also good to to know what to do when your plan goes sideways, which at some at some point in time it's going to, um, yeah. and then how to how to read those signs. So really, you know, I think if we're if we're setting expectations for folks at present with our present knowledge, the best we can do is give you a plan that'll that we think is going to work based on experience. And then when you get to that, you know, mile twenty mile twenty of the run, then uh, then there, a little bit of improvisation is called for. Definitely. And I would say, I would add to that sort of, it's like, it is experience, but it's, it's experience of, of using the data that you've got as well. So, you know, if, if, cause, cause if you've, if you've got an appreciation of things like sweat rate, you know, energy output, salt loss, those type of things, there's the reason that people sometimes get this, this badly wrong is when they maybe copy another a friend or an athlete who's right. successful or something like that, who happens to be a kind of bad bio match for them if that's if there's such a phrase you know so so i i remember once talking to a, a really top ironman athlete about his you know, approach when i was trying to unpick this problem for myself and i was like shocked and stunned at how little this guy got away with with drinking and and stuff but i thought mm, maybe that's maybe that's where i'm going wrong i'm just overdoing it but clearly that was not the plan for me you know i tried it and it it just didn't work and um, and and although sometimes talking to people with more experience or, or more success is a useful exercise, in a dimension as as individual as nutrition and hydration, I think having the having the sort of wherewithal to really kind of investigate your situation from the ground up is 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 really important. It's also, I think, one of the big reasons why there's all this controversy and disagreement in this space because people are very very defensive about strategies that worked for them and it's like well i i did this and this worked really well for me so that must be the right way 
And of course, if that doesn't jive with what someone else is doing, it's like, well, they're doing it completely wrong. <laughs> yeah, you're and, you're the idiot then, right? Yeah, exactly. And you get and I, and, I, and I'll hold my hands up, you know, definitely and say, you know, first off, when I got on the when I figured out that taking loads of sodium and fluid was what I needed, it became my sort of thing to tell everyone, you know, this is what you need. <laughs> yeah, I figured this right. out, and it and it's only with a bit more experience and a lot more, you know, uh, well, experience of a lot a lot of different people and what they need that i've got i've got an appreciation for how broad different people's requirements are what's also tricky is it makes it a really difficult proposition to communicate because what people don't want to hear is they don't want to hear this kind of ambiguous well it depends on this and it depends on that yep. it sounds like you're hedging your bets the whole time totally. which to an extent you are but it's but it's disingenuous just to give people the the oversimplified like cliff notes version of something that that actually is way more nuanced and and I guess one of the things that with precision hydration we're aiming to do is help to bridge that gap. We, we're fielding many, many emails and phone calls every day now. And I've got um, a great team around me of people with in-depth knowledge in this area, you know, sports scientists and athletes who are answering emails that come into us about, you know, trying to help people iterate their then nutrition and hydration strategies and we get some fantastic feedback after people tweak things and, and follow you know some some suggested plans that we eventually get to a solution for them and then this is like a breakthrough you know we had a couple of massive breakthroughs in Kona with athletes this year just gone people who one lady who wrote to us after the event who'd just had a horrible time in Kona the previous couple of times she'd been to this time she came back five years older than she'd previously been and she's into the 50s age group now so at a point where getting older is a performance disadvantage and she went like an hour and a half quicker Holy purely God. because she got this the, the thing right now that didn't that's not me trying to take credit for someone's improvement all she she wrote to us and just said i got this so badly wrong last time i, I managed to you know figure this out with the help of the testing and stuff that you in the advice from your team and look at this i've just gone and you know executed the race that i wanted to do five years ago and that's that's so brilliant but it does require people to take that that sort of that leap of faith that actually they've got to just investigate this for themselves there's no there's no massive shortcut Right. And I think that I, I, I agree with you. I think there, it's, it's often very hard to strike that balance between um, appreciating the fact that we are, you know, individuals and that, that our, uh, our needs and our abilities are unique. But at the same time, understanding, too, that there are a lot of similarities. You know what I mean? Like you, yeah. you're not going to say, oh, you know, you are you are unique. You don't need to drink any water in an Ironman. You know, like obviously that's yeah. a that's a that's a trivial and kind of a flippant thing to say. But there are there are more similarities than there are differences, right? Like we all need water. Yeah. We all need sodium. We all need fuel. And you know, my opinion that fuel is carbohydrates. Um, the concentrations and the delivery methods are different. I agree with you, and that's where the experimentation comes in. But I think that what you outlined really well, I think, throughout the course of this conversation, is that here's where we think the starting point is and here's where we think you can you know here's the range you know yeah. here's here are some best practices um exactly yeah. and how you go about it that's there's there's a lot of wiggle room there but you know certain things are here's where this you know here's where that kind of the this the sports science is on this particular topic i just 
Uh, the only reason I, I, I make this point at all is that is that sometimes when you tell people that you know in, the strategies need to be individual, they go completely completely off the rails and start making stuff up. Yeah, definitely. It's kind of like individual within certain constraints, basically. Yeah, exactly. It's really obvious to people with with bike fit and stuff like that, isn't it? You know, because what the sports drink industry, if, if the sports drink industry in general has been made if, if they were making bikes for the last you know 30 years or whatever what they've been doing is banging out a medium and just yeah. and just saying that right. that'll do for everyone yeah. you know and that the bike yeah. industry couldn't get away with that neither could wetsuits or shoes or anything like that but then somehow nutrition has managed it you know because because of course <laughs> it makes sense you know you can just knock out one yeah. product then or one Sure. One variety and, and sort of create fewer skews for you, yeah, exactly. And uh, what we do is, uh, you know, talk talk to my to 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 the guys in the office who manage, you know, inventory management and fulfillment for us. You know, it is a headache when you've got when you're trying. We do four different, we do three different primary strengths of drink in two different formats, and you know, just getting the the that balance right of, of what we're going to need where around the world when we're shipping and all that sort of stuff is is more tricky than if we could just bang out one product yeah you know, for, for definite but but by by doing that we offer the range that, that that benefit the athlete and i think that gradually you know nutrition and and hydration will catch up to that but it's definitely not there yet at the moment it's all about you know one one size fits all yeah, I agree that that there's you know the approach is changing, but I think it's it's heading in the right direction, and uh, I love that analogy of <laughs> you know, bike fit and shoes. That makes that makes a ton of sense. But you you talking about your product? I actually have a um, this is a sidebar question for you. This was just something that I've always wondered, sure. and I sent it to you in the email. But um, you have uh, one of the products uh, you have is uh, sodium or, or electrolytes with sugar, which you which you mix into your into water to make your concentration. Yeah. But the other one are the effervescent tags that are sugar-free um, and that's yeah. that's a product that uh, I'd, I'd like to f- maybe for you to talk about a little bit mostly because I'm curious why wh- where you see the market need for a product that has electrolytes so obviously for longer duration work that has no um, no carbohydrate which as you and I just talked about plays a role in uh, absorption absorption yeah no good good question I mean basically I think if you're designing a drink for purely for maximum fluid uptake then you include a little bit of glucose a lot of sodium and water and that that's the optimum mix so that the pH powder products that we make are formulated in in exactly that way right the tabs the, the zero calorie effervescence we 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 started with those because there was um, I think they offer a bit of flexibility to some people in in terms of if you wanted to, for instance, take um, all of your um, all of your calories through gels and bars and, and other other sources of carbohydrate. Then ultimately, you know, you're you're going to be taking the two products together, and in the stomach, that means that there's glucose available. It means that there's sodium and fluid, and that absorption can happen as it needs to on that basis. So when if people want to completely decouple hydration from calories it gives the option to do that the the other the other reason as well is that um i know that a lot of athletes although it's not it's it's not my personal um take on or not my preferred philosophy if you like there are a lot of athletes that are experimenting with lower carbohydrate intake um doing fasted training um who, who benefit from taking electrolytes along with um along with water but without 
a large amount of carbohydrates, or at least they don't want to take a large amount of carbohydrates. And also, we we also those, those products, although sport is a huge market for us, we do a lot of um, work in occupational health oh, okay. as well. So with people that sweat a lot, but maybe aren't expending huge amounts of energy like athletes. So people who are working in manual, light manual jobs in very, very oppressive conditions are wearing a lot of protective equipment. Right. And so we might have people who are like, um, one, one great group that we work with are in Australia and they weld rail railroad tracks and fix railroad tracks in extreme heat wearing loads of gear. So the work is quite manual, but they're not burning the sort of calories that an Ironman you know, you're burning on the marathon in Ironman, but they need to replace a lot of salts with their fluids, and they find that the effervescent tablets with low calories are, are better than getting the guys to drink lots of sugary drinks right, sure. when they're adding lots of sugar on top of the diet. So I think that from a pure, from a pure performance athletic standpoint, the carb, the, the light carb, heavy sodium, you know, fluid drink is, is the sort of number one choice, but there's definitely an application for the others. Understood. Yeah. Thanks for taking the time to do that. I, uh, it wasn't necessarily core to our discussion, but I was always just curious. I have a lot of questions, Andy. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's all good. I like it. I like it. Um, so that wraps up, you know, my, uh, uh, my quest for, for information from, uh, from this side of things. Is there anything else that we missed that you think that, uh, you know, folks that are listening to the show ought to pay attention to? I, th- I think that, um, hydration and cramping is always a big topic we get asked about, and you know we could we could ch- chat about it now. But also, we it's probably one of the most well-read blogs on our on our website. We've got like a four thousand word piece which is always being added to and tweaked, all about you know the relationship between or the potential relationship between electrolyte loss, fluid imbalance, fluid loss, and, and muscle cramps during exercise. So if people are interested in that, what I'd actually maybe suggest is that they head to precisionhydration.com, go to our blog section, which is all keyword searchable, and look for the article on cramp. There's also on that part of our website is an absolute ton of information so if people want to know more about you know how to predict how much fluid they're losing how much salt they're losing if they want to do our online sweat test which is like a questionnaire based test that starts to help them decide whether they're low medium high or very high sweat and salt um you know, where they have high or low salt losses and sweat losses they can do all of that so you know what i'd love to do and and also people can just email us if they've got questions at hello at precisionhydration.com and we, we love to hear from from people who've got questions because we can often you know start start a conversation then around getting someone's racing and uh, racing and training hydration plans sorted out so they can reach out to us if, if anyone wants to help uh, try out any of our products we've also set up a code for your listeners which is uh, just endurance innovation and that'll give them 15 percent off their first order on the website perfect and of course i'll put all of this in the in the show notes so just uh, flip me those links and they'll they'll go in there definitely and if you get any questions directed into you that you want to bounce out to us or or want to do a q a at any point in the future then you know feel free we'd, we'd love to do that for sure i think uh it might make sense to do you know you brought up an excellent topic and this was just not top of mind for me at the moment but it is a question that i i get as a coach i get all the time the one the one about cramping and uh what is what can i do about cramping and what what are the some of the strategies so uh for now we'll encourage folks to take a look at that blog post but then that's uh, a potentially a really interesting topic of discussion for a follow-up episode andy i think absolutely yeah sounds great
Andy, thanks so much again for uh, for coming on. I learned some things for sure, and uh, I'm I, I believe that uh, everyone listening to the show will have picked up a nugget or two during this conversation. So thank you for that. No, th- thanks for having me on, and I'm sorry I didn't get to chat with Andrew this time, and that he's um, you know missing him in midair, but sending my best, and hopefully connect with him in the future. Absolutely, we'll do. Yeah, when we when we do our follow up, we'll uh, we'll make sure that uh, everyone's everyone's on uh, on board. Um, and uh, to everyone, as always, thank you very much for l- tuning in and for uh, supporting the show. Uh, to help us grow, tell your friends, rate and review us on iTunes, and uh, we will talk to you next week. 